When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. The following podcast contains explicit language. Sure, everyone here is fanatical about architecture. Are you kidding? No, most people, they don't really have any idea. I mean, they know some things, but they don't really give a shit. Is that right? Yeah. You'd be surprised how little people know or care about architecture here. Maybe not. What do you mean? I'm just like everyone here. You grow up around something and it feels like nothing. What's up, everyone? I'm your host, Aisha Harris, and welcome back to Represent. On today's episode, you'll get to hear a very film-geeky conversation I had with video essayist-turned-feature filmmaker Koganada, in which we discussed a lot of things, including his debut film, Columbus, starring John Cho, which is out in theaters this weekend. But before we get into that, I wanted to briefly discuss something really cool with Verilyn here. Hi. Hey. hey. Welcome, Verilyn. <laughs> uh, side note, if you're not checking out her wonderful uh, section of the podcast. Yeah. The, 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 the special series. The sub, this, I don't know. <laughs> whatever. The special series. The special Bachelorette series. You should check it out. Represent fina- Rose. Yes. The finale is coming very soon. Yes. So, yeah. I'm trying to get Aisha to join us in that. We'll see what happens. <laughs> I haven't been watching any of it, but... <laughs> it will require you to listen to the three parts that are out so far and then watching the finale. Well, yes. I've listened to the last two, just not the most recent one. Okay. Okay. Yay. But anyway. Verilyn's <laughs> here because we wanted to just briefly discuss something that a listener brought to my attention a little while back via email. Meg in Philadelphia. I got Thank it. you, Meg. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Meg. Uh, she gave me permission to mention her and mention this lovely thing she sent me, which is called The Upward Path, A Reader for Colored Children. It's a book that was put together by academics Myron T. Pritchard, a school principal in Boston, and Mary White Ovington, who was chair of the NAACP at the time, and it was published in 1920. You can find it online. We'll include a link to it on the show page. Mm-hmm. We also have already put it up on our Facebook page, so you can check it out there. And there's a bunch of different poems and stories in this book from such luminaries as Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois, and Phyllis Wheatley. Um, but the one that she sort of singled out for me is called The Black Fairy, and it's by Fenton Johnson, who is a poet. And it's a really lovely little short story. I really enjoyed it. I read it, first of all. My commute is very short, thank God. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> and so I was able to read it on my way in this morning. And I was just like, ugh, like as a person that, like, I, um, 
Oh, crap. What's the name of this book? She was a Peter Pan. Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. Okay. So it's so funny that you brought that up because I was actually going to bring that up too. And I love this story. <laughs> yes. My I, my parents bought that for me. I was probably like in kindergarten, first grade mm-hmm. or whatever. I remember that the cover was like, it had like a blue border because like all the books back then yes. had like borders around them. <laughs> remember the children's oh, books? So and then it's just her like beautiful brown face yes. grinning. Yeah. But anyway, Amazing Grace. Yeah. And I literally bought... I heard a, someone talking about it on a podcast and I was like, oh my God, I love this book. And so I bought like four copies because I have an Amazon problem. I went on <laughs> Amazon and I ordered like four copies and I've been giving it to my little cousins Aww. and I'm going to give it to my niece for her birthday. And yeah, it's like, it, it just like, she. so the story is that she's a, um, she wants to play Peter Pan and the white girl is telling her she can't play be Peter Pan because she's black. And, and then, then the boy is telling her she can't be Peter Pan because she's a girl. Which, of course, for the record, <laughs> Peter Pan has almost always been played by women. I mean, and also <laughs> it's a person that can fly. Like, Yes. <laughs> what? Yeah, that too. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So as far as like that story stuck, stuck with me because here was this black little girl at the center of this story. And besides that, I'm really hard pressed to think about other children's books with that being the case. I mean, I remember there being a lot of children's books that my parents gave to me that were very specifically like, because this was, I was born in the end of the 80s, going into 90s. Mm-hmm. So there's like very much like, you know, the black, uh, af- like black power, not the black power movement, but like the sort of African literary. Mo- yeah. I, yeah. And so like, I remember getting like sort of like those children's books, biography books that were about oh, like Bessie Coleman yes, yeah. and all of that. And I also remember Tar Beach. You remember Tar Beach? I, I know the cover, the cover's in my head, yeah. but I don't remember the story. I I vaguely remember the story, but I just remember it was Tar, the Tar Beach was like the rooftop. They would hang out at the rooftop in, mm. in New York City. I think it was New York City. And it was just like beautifully illustrated. I never associated that with black characters for some reason. Oh, they were black. And it was, uh, Tar Beach was uh, Faith Ringgold. And mm. it was beautifully illustrated. It was like, I think it was more picture, but like there were there were some, there were some words, but oh, here's, I'm showing her the cover. Yes. Remember? It's so I gorgeous. I do remember this cover for sure. And it reminds me because my, my aunt is a quilter. And so like the mm. patterns uh, reminded me of her quilts. Mm. Anyway, we digress. Yes. The... <laughs> The whole point is to say that, like, you know, we, to some extent, we're starved for images mm-hmm. of people who look oh, like Lola us. Oh, Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. Remember oh, that? yeah. That, I think I read that in, like, third or fourth grade. Yeah. And it's interesting because, I mean, of course, we're going to get to the Black Fairy. Um, but all of those stories are all about, like, I'm very tied into American racial politics in some way at least mm. i'm thinking about amazing grace you can't do this because you're black and a woman and roll of and thunder, roll of thunder hear, my- hear my cry which is obviously about like racial tension that was set like there were sharecroppers right? yeah there were sharecroppers yeah. and yeah. i remember a fire yeah there's a fire there's also the sequel which is like let the circle be unbroken mm. there are, there's at least one other book right but this one has nothing to do with that <laughs> no no no, no. The, the black fairy is different in that you know, we are talking as kids of the late 80s, early 90s, uh, whereas The Black Fairy, this was part of a collection of uh, stories from 1920. Mm-hmm. And just thinking about, like, how far back yeah. this goes. And and that's the point that Meg, uh, in her email to me, made. And I was like, yeah, you're right. Like, this is crazy. So essentially, the 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 story, The Black Fairy, a little girl named Annabelle is lying on the lawn 
and she's reading a, a, a volume of grim fairy tales. And she's like nine years old. She and apparently she's the daughter of a colored colored lawyer. This was nineteen twenty, after mm-hmm. all. And the prettiest dark child in the village. <laughs> that's what that's what they say. And so she's uh, she's reading Grimm's fairy tales, but she's like, oh, they're like. I wish I had some like someone who looked like me. Like, is there a colored fairy out there? And then, lo and behold, a colored fairy shows appears. up. Appears. <laughs> and then this colored fairy essentially gives her like a history lesson about Ethiopia. <laughs> this is like and like Ghana. Yeah, and, uh, we should also be remind like this is the time of also like Marcus Garvey and that yeah. sort of like the Back to Africa movement. So. You have that to consider. So she's talking about the kings and the queens and and how, you know, they lived in um, relative prosperity, which I think is sort of like, you know, not everyone is a king, queen in Africa. But, you know, they were clearly superior. Like, yeah, there's a sense of like, you know, this is who you come from. And they were the shit. And know that you come from people that are superior than every other people. Yes, <laughs> very much so. <laughs> so you know, it, in a way, it's a little not hoteppy, but there's definitely border. some hoteppish things in there. Yes, but there's also like beautiful, like you know, I didn't know that Fenton Johnson was a poet, and that makes so much sense because there's some beautiful language um, I highlighted, and she dropped a tear, so beautiful, the costliest pearl would seem worthless beside it. There's like a lot of imagery going going on there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you definitely, I feel like this, like if, if it was in one of my African-American classes in college, like we would have spent like a whole class on that one <laughs> sentence. Yes. <laughs> um, suffice it all to say that um, I think that what really just struck me is how history is just always happening like it's just yeah for better for worse it's repeating itself and i think that i i hope that this helped some some black and brown kids uh in 1920 i had the same sort of things you know that like i mentioned earlier that my parents gave me those books that were very like you know black is beautiful like a lot of black is beautiful but Mm -hmm. it was like black is beautiful we're gonna keep telling you that over and over (laughs) um anything with like brown girl in title like yeah and i feel like i'm doing that now for my little cousin and my niece Mm -hmm. well you have to it's because i mean even now yes there are way more images and like i think about it and sometimes i go back and i'm like well you know what it i was starved for images but i wasn't at the same time like i had it better than my parents did Mm because like you go back and you look at stuff like TGIF and I mean some of those depictions were problematic but they they were we've still talked about there. In and we yes we talked about it but like <laughs> yeah. you know we had sister sister we yeah. had you had like Laura who was a dark skinned girl on yeah. family matter who like Everyone men loved, wanted to be yeah. so like we had those things mm-hmm. um but like even now when when little kids have like my younger sisters who are very young uh you know they have doc mcstuffins yeah. the the show with a little girl who's like a doctor mm-hmm. uh but you still have to push back against it because it's still out there that black is not yeah. as prized as whiteness. So I'm going to share this story and I'll cut it just in case my sister is like, don't you share this. Um, <laughs> but I don't think she would mind. So my sister has vitiligo. And so her the pigmentation in her skin is like very, very, very fair. Mm-hmm. And so my niece... My sister was telling me my niece got into an argument with kids in her school. So over the summer, she's going to some program that's different than her regular school. And in this school, they see my sister and they're like, oh, your mom is white. And my niece got into an argument. She's like, no, my mom is black. 
I was like cringing at the idea that like she even had to like have this conversation because it's like one of those like useless conversations because you don't want to like give credence to this conversation in general right like the idea of like colorism you don't want to go there but I loved I was like so proud of her to just be like no 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 I'm black my mama's black we black and there's nothing wrong with that yeah um so yeah in some way like this is why we have to keep reinforcing it because at all levels, they get challenged because, like, we internalize so much of this stuff and we pass it on to young people without even knowing it. Yeah, that's the thing is that so much of it is, is subconscious. Mm-hmm. And I you, it, it, it takes years to undo that. It took me mm-hmm. years to undo that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whew. Yeah. Anyway. I mean, Lisa Turtle, to this day, I'm just like, yo, why was it that she never was in, like, a serious relationship? That made zero sense. Yeah. Especially since Lisa Turtle, by, like, anyone's standards. It's way is better than pretty... Kelly Kapowski. We're talking about Saved by the Bell, if anyone Lars Voorhees. Lark Lark Voorhees. Hope she's okay, wherever she is right now. Yeah, I think she's fine. I think she's doing better than uh, Stacey Dash. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Anywho. <laughs> Thank you, Meg, for yes. sending us this really lovely story and everyone should check it out and yeah just think about the things that you're passing on to the younger generation yeah and if there's any listeners that have recommendations for other books and titles that we missed out on um that maybe they should turn into a tv show or movie or cartoon or maybe they should leave it alone whatever just um (laughs) hit us up at represent at space.com Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And now, director Koganada and I talk about his first film, Columbus. So if you're a cinephile and appreciate older movies, like myself, there's a chance you've seen his work already online. He's done some visually stunning and inquisitive video essays focusing on filmmaking and auteurs like Ozu and Richard Linklater. Now, with Columbus, he's taken on being behind the camera and brought some excellent actors with him. John Cho plays Jin, who is in town to look after his estranged father after he falls ill, And Haley Lou Richardson is Casey, a young woman stuck in Columbus due to her sense of obligation to take care of her drug-addicted mother. Jin and Casey strike up a friendship that takes them deep into philosophical queries as it relates to Columbus's existence as a surprisingly huge architectural hub. Koganada talked about his love of movies, the difficulties of trying to sell a film with an Asian lead, and the story behind his mysterious moniker. Check it out. Well, it is my pleasure to welcome to the studio today, we have Koganada. Welcome. Thank you. It's yeah. great to be here. Thanks. Yeah, it's it's funny because we've actually, Slate, we've published a few of your um, video essays or reposted them okay. on, on the site. And yeah. they tend to do really great. And oh. we'll get a little bit more into that. I want to ask you some questions about that later. But first, I want to find out exactly how you went from being this sort of film editor of video essays to making the leap to this first feature film. Yeah. Well, you know, I think uh, there's sort of a history of people who are doing like film criticism or film writing who uh, also really want to make films. Uh, And I think that was always the case. Um, Yeah. Once this sort of 
possibility of working and offering some take on cinema, but doing it by cutting and recutting and and uh, mixing the cinematic form um, that even made made it feel closer, right? Because I was mm-hmm. actually working on. Um, uh, cinema in that way. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that was always the desire. Um, and there was probably some quiet ambition about that. Uh, and as uh, I had more opportunity, yeah, there was a moment where uh, some people had asked if I was ever going to do something longer. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that planted a seed in my head to say, if I'm going to do this, I, I need to do it. And so yeah. I started writing a, a script, you know, I had tons of uh, notes on other, you know, film ideas that I would one day, you know, hopefully do, and and um, yeah, so that's how it came together. Yeah. So how exactly did you fall upon this this story in particular? Like, I see a lot of elements, and other people have noticed elements from you know some of the filmmakers who I think I know you admire, and and um, like Ozu and and Linklater, but. You know, where where did this this story come from? Because it, it feels familiar, but then it also feels very different. Yeah. Well, thank you for saying that. Um, yeah. I mean, I definitely have uh, influences, and um, uh, and uh, yeah, I, I hope it shows. But um, I think you know, I knew that I wanted to do a story about the burden children feel uh, in regard to their parents, especially this sort of uh, sense. Uh, of departure, mm-hmm. either that they're aging or they're, uh, and you feel that vulnerability, uh, and however you feel about your parents, you have to deal with that loss. Mm-hmm. And then also from the perspective of someone who's younger, who's going to have to say bye to their parents, that that first bye that they ever have to do. Um, I think I knew that um, my first film was going to explore that kind of departure, and mm-hmm. and really. Uh, it wasn't until I visited Columbus that it really gave it um, some structure and fleshed it out. Like once I knew the place, it really brought everything to life. So, so this is Columbus, Indiana, Columbus, not Indiana. Columbus, Ohio, which right. is, was my original thought. <laughs> now, first of all, why were you in Columbus, Indiana? Yeah, <laughs> that's a good question. I grew up in the Midwest. So I had passed uh, probably that exit, you know, uh, mm-hmm. hundreds of times, but never knew about it until I read um, – uh, an article in the New York Times. And I think NPR also did a piece on it. It had just, I think what had happened was they had just been ranked one of the top 10 architecturally significant cities in America mm. by the AIA. And I think it was a surprise to everyone because, you know, it was like San Francisco and New York and Chicago and then this little town of 45,000. Right. And uh, so I, when I read that, uh, these little features, I was like, what in the world? You know, so it was yeah. really out of a kind of curiosity to say, like, what, you know, this sounds like, a, you know, uh, a town I would, I, I definitely want to see. It's about all these sort of uh, modern architects that I uh, adore. And I had no idea that this uh, little town existed. Yeah. So you're 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 drawn to architecture, like that's something you're very, very yeah, interested in. Definitely, yeah. And I think in general, like I think modern art forms to uh, speak to me a certain way because I think it it's trying to address um, the the loss of meaning in in the modern world. And I think our, uh, the modernism itself is wrestling with that question. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I've always been interested in that that question. Mm-hmm. 
it's also isn't this where Mike Pence is from, or he lives, or <laughs> yeah, that's, okay. Yeah, no, he he uh, was born there. He grew up there. Right. Yeah, yeah. And at the time, you know, once we were shooting it, then uh, you know, uh, we found out that he was going to be the vice president. But we all thought, oh, that's not going to be so relevant. You know, he there he's going to lose, and and you know, but uh, yeah, it's kind of kind of amazing. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I mean, with the architecture, the thing about shooting it's one thing to take photos of architecture but it's another to try and like write a film that's very much heavily like the architecture is part of the the mise-en-scene is part of all of this stuff and you know did you come up against any challenges of how to make the architecture come alive in that way yeah well you know and that's such a good point i mean uh, i think that one advantage that i think i had because i love architecture and i love photos of architecture but it always flattens out the space uh, and it becomes this sort of art object the beautiful thing about architecture is i really do feel like it's the the art of space and uh and really uh it's it's a space that we can encounter and engage and inhabit it's very different than any other art form because, you know, usually they are just these this sort of objects that you uh, stand off, but you work and move through architecture, and it's always changing. And so just by having, like, bringing the architecture to life by putting it in the context of a narrative was already this thing that I knew was going to alter our relationship with these buildings, you know, and that it was really important for me, not just... Um, uh, in its composition, but to really make sure that the human beings kind of warm that space up because they are struggling in, in the context of um, these buildings and moving through them. But in regard to that space, we did want to open it up. We wanted us to feel the space. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and we did li- limit our movement uh, just because we wanted it to uh, reside, you know, and, and feel grounded and give us uh, time really to also kind of feel that space. Yeah, there's not a lot of – there's a lot of just stationary camera happening. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, which, again, also feels very Ozu in yeah. a way. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I noticed that, that it's very – it's not a still movie, but it's definitely not a. The camera's not always wrapping around and moving. That's and, right. And all that stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think we knew that from the get go that it was going to be a lot of uh, lockdown shots, and mm-hmm. we knew that there would be some movement, uh, but we were going to be really uh, careful about when and yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, with regards to casting John Cho, um, you you wrote this and. As I understand it, you wrote it with an in, in, uh, Asian lead in mind, correct? Right. Well, you know, it, it, I, I think I started with knowing that it was going to be someone from uh, overseas. Okay. But yeah. it, it, it you know, only took me a few seconds to realize, like, I'm going to write him Asian, you know? Yes, uh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, while the movie doesn't have a quote-unquote message per se, it's mm-hmm. definitely like – there are very culturally specific moments. Absolutely. With, you know, John, John Cho's character, Jin, constantly on the phone. There's no subtitles right. speaking in Korean. Yeah. Um, he, there's a few, like, asides of him mentioning his, his ethnicity. Yeah. <laughs> there's that yeah. when he first meets, uh, what is her name? Uh, Eleanor. Or no. Uh, Casey. Casey, yeah. Yes. You speak English. You don't think Asians can speak English? Yeah, of course. No, yeah. I was just, I heard you speaking on the phone and I... Sorry, I'm being a jerk. 
offer me a cigarette and I'm giving you a hard time. I didn't mean to. I know what you meant. When he first meets Casey, played by Haley Lou Richardson, um, he, he she says something, and he's like, "Oh, so you assume this because I'm Asian or something?" And then he's right. he's like, "Well, I'm sorry, I'm being a dick, but still." <laughs> right. But there's those moments, and you know, this is a very small movie. Mm-hmm. I know how the industry works. Yeah. How difficult was it to to pitch this movie and and even get it made, having yeah an Asian lead specified. Yeah, I mean, it was... So, you know, I, and I, I may have been naive because I watch a lot of international cinema. I mm-hmm. see a lot of diversity. And um, yeah, and, and I think the film community that I interact with, that, that's common and everyone knows Asian actors and their favorites and, and, and all of that. Yeah. So I think bringing this in, and especially someone like John Cho is probably one of the most well-known uh, Asian American actors. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really surprised at how it was um, there were financiers who pretty much said uh, y- there's no market value for an Asian man and just was very dismissive. Even with John Cho? Was Even he on board before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, he was yeah. On, on, on board. But it, they just basically said, yeah, there's no there's no value, <laughs> which was, <laughs> you know, th- not yeah. everyone. But there was definitely a number who, of, of um, financiers who pretty clearly just said there's no, no value. Hmm. And um, so that... You know, that was eye-opening. And, yeah. And I think there was even some, like, if you would consider changing, you know. uh, And, you know, and, of course, it's not uh, so common or uncommon. And, and I, you know, I've heard that on radio shows or podcasts of people having that sort of uh, experience. So I don't know why it was so eye opening, but it mm. was, you know, yeah, yeah. nonetheless, when you're on the receiving side of it, and, it is, and it's uh, reduced to that to some like uh, imagined sense of value. Uh, it is something that that makes you pause and, 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 you know, but on the other hand, you know, when you find someone like a Chris White's, who was the person who said we should cast John Cho Mm -hmm. and was always behind it. And then, you know, ultimately uh, we found Danielle and and, and, uh, she also knew Chris, but she uh, read the script and was so, you know, supportive of it and had zero questions about that. You know, and was, Chris White is, uh, he's, he's one of the producers got mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. and, uh, and he has worked with John, you know, he's mm-hmm. a big Hollywood uh, mm-hmm. p- producer. Um, but yeah, and he, I think is championing that. And that's, you know, partly why we, I was able to make also a very sort of distinct film that is its own thing is we had someone like him who was just going to protect it. And Daniel as well, you know, who yeah. really brought in the money to, to finance it, uh, was really about protecting this this vision. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, did that, like when you're hearing that, that an Asian lead doesn't have any value, like how does that make you feel just on a like gutter, like yeah. setting aside <laughs> the artistic, right. the the feelings about that, like did it hurt? Was it disappointing? Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I think there's a point that it just sounds ridiculous to Mm -hmm. me. You know, I I mean, I understand the way in which and and I, you know, truthfully, I I mean, I think whether you're uh, an Asian actor or uh, a black actor or you're even a white actor, 
the way in which all actors are are quantified by and, value, and, yeah, and by value. And yeah. literally, someone told me there's some kind of book in which you you know you can like kind of identify actors and what they're going to bring in with like specific people's names. I, I think so, or or you know, I don't or know types. Was, yeah, yeah. But it was uh, like that sort of reduction of humanity. I mean, it's literally quantifying human beings into a number mm-hmm. is is to me ridiculous. You yeah. know, and it's like some sort of desire to. Um, you know, turn everything into a formula. And yeah. so uh, there's a part of me that doesn't believe it. So it's easy for me to dismiss. Does it like, am I taken aback by it? And as an Asian male, um, and, you know, there's all kinds of cultural indicators that, that suggest uh, that maybe tries to reinforce that idea, you know, but yeah. Uh, so yeah, there's probably a little bit of hurt, but it, it would hurt more if I believed it. If, you know, mm-hmm. I just I just think it's like a ridiculous reduction of human beings. It, it seems ridiculous to me. Yeah, just a few weeks ago, we actually discussed the whole Hawaii Five O thing, right. where that was just another example of like how it it brought up all these complications about how we quantify actors and especially right. how we quantify you know Asian actors who ostensibly in a show set in Hawaii should be (laughs) mostly South Pacific. uh, That's absolutely right. Yeah. 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 And where, and you know, it is this sort of thing where, um, and I know people have said this before, but maybe they have a show or something and it doesn't register or doesn't bring in money. And so they base every judgment on that. But, you know, as, as people have said, there have been so many shows with like white actors that have failed and, you know, that never discourages, but it takes one you know, show or one film in which they don't feel like it, it has market value and, it, and they use that formula for everything, which, again, is really – I think it's really easy to reveal the, the, the falsehood of that kind of, you know, um, assessment. And we've seen the opposite. We've seen, like, films that star women and black women. Like we're seeing that and it's, like, really successful, but that's not necessarily going to, you know, uh, encourage that sort of – although I, I, I do think – with that said, I mean, I do think things are changing. You know? yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, it just is, it's crazy to me because, you know, like you were saying, you watch a lot of international cinema. You're, you're, you're a film nerd. You yeah, are a yeah. cinephile. Like, that's what you are. Uh-huh. And it's it's weird to me because whenever I speak with film nerds and, and, and you know, I went to film school and, like, we had to watch a bunch of, you know. Wait, uh, you're a film nerd. I, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I say it in a <laughs> okay. way, and I say it in a, you know. <laughs> so you don't, you don't just speak to film nerds. You no, are a film nerd. Yes, yes, I can yes. tell. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, you know, I watched Ozu. We watched, you know, Miyazaki, all that, like, all of that stuff. And those are, tip, like, typically even if you think about sight and sound, the sight and sound yeah. poll every right. 10 years. Like, there's always so many Asian, Amer- well, mostly Asian, not Asian American, but Asian auteurs. Yeah on those lists and yet somehow still they consider it like not marketable yeah. I mean I get that it's a little bit different because these are smaller movies they're not making right. as much money but right. then you have someone like was Anderson I mean he's had bigger hits recently mm-hmm. but like his early movies were really small right right so yeah yeah and I don't think it's just about you know diversity I I, I feel really hopeful in the sense that uh, we've seen in America how food culture has changed you know mm-hmm. I think there was you know 20 years ago pretty people had pretty bland taste and it was like this kind of whatever version of American food was this sort of middle you know American food yeah. and you know I've said this before but I I remember very when I was young this idea of sushi and people would say raw fish and it was just like, I still say that yeah <laughs> I don't like sushi okay but I get it yeah yeah but it's funny 
like you can yeah. go to like like some really redneck area of the South, and there are people eating sushi. Oh yeah, and that uh, you know that there is this sort of like growing palette of different. Uh, ethnic foods that people are, are beginning to get excited about and talk about. It just, uh, there has to be a moment where people are willing to take that risk. And that's why I think in some ways this question of diversity, which I, I think is so valuable and important, uh, but it's also not just a numbers game. Like, I don't want it like, you know, if I can just keep using the food analogy, you know, mm-hmm. it's like um, we it's an important discussion to say, OK, how many like if this one kitchen only hires like uh, white chefs and white cooks, then that's a problem. Like right. you have to change the, those numbers because that's a problem. But if you get people in there and they're just all making the same thing, it's just like you, now you've taught all these like diverse people who are now working in the kitchen, but they're still making this kind of very generic or just this one kind of food. Um, you know, it's it's important to get people to be able to cook, but we are also offering sensibilities. You know, it's like mm-hmm. it's the paucity of cinema in America that we don't have not just these directors, but it's equally important that they're not just making the same product, mm-hmm. but that they are infusing it with their culture. You know, it really is we'll have a richer palette of cinema if we get people in there who's not just making what has been made before and we're just happy if we're able to play that game, but right. that we are really going to enhance cinema, as you said, because, you know, there's this international palette that we've tasted of. And, and I think it will. I, I do have to believe that it's going to happen here. You know? mm-hmm. And it's happening. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I know you've also said that one of the things that drew you to Columbus was the the idea that, like, there's a very modern the tension between modernity, but then also like the Western values that it that modernity often encompasses and, and how you kind of wanted to get away from that. Could you speak a little bit more? Yeah, well, it's just that, you know, for the longest time, and it has changed, certainly in the academia has changed, but it used, there used to be a reduction of modernity to Westernization. When you talked about mm-hmm. being modern, people were like, oh, you're talking about being Western. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, um, so often when you talked even about, even in the realm of, I think, modern art, it was v- highly defined through the history of Western thought, through yeah. the history of Western ideas and Western art. But now, you know, and, and certainly this uh, academia accepts this reality that there are modernities and, and when the modern world hit other cultures, it didn't play out the same way. And other cultures have different, a different kind of past and breaking from those pasts are, are, are quite different, you mm-hmm. know. And that's certainly true for Eastern Asian cultures. So I, I've read somewhere that you, this is actually... I know this is your first feature film, but this is also like your first time being on a set, correct? Or at least like directing yeah, a set. Certainly, yeah, that scale, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What what is the what was it like that first day on set and then by the end of it how do you think you had changed or was there anything specific that you really took away from this experience that you didn't have from your video essays? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, certainly it was uh, humbling in the way that, um, you know, from uh, like a film theory or film critic point of view, you just, uh, you know, and when you're analyzing films, you in your head, no matter what you hear, you have this ideal scenario that, a film should should do these certain things mm-hmm. uh, without constant obstacles from financing to to the day, 
And so it's very easy to take apart a film and just say, well, why didn't they do this? You know, without knowing all the yeah. the, 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 the factors. So it's really uh, humbling for film theory to uh, meet practice mm-hmm. and and the nuts and bolts of it. And But that was a really beautiful experience. I mean, I think I, I uh, was happy to I- encounter all the nuts and bolts of filmmaking and, and what uh, why we see what we see. Um, but I have heard filmmakers say, uh, oh, it's harder for me to judge other films now because it's such an accomplishment to get any film finished. And yeah. I, I can fully understand that sort of uh, that idea. So I think part of it was a kind of humility uh, for the, the, the practice. Uh, I, I have said before that working with the actors was the th- unknown for me. Like, you know, I think I had thought so much about the form of cinema, but um, that was such a delight. Uh, it mm-hmm. was a, a, almost a surprising, beautiful thing to see them do their craft, to talk to them about it. Um, uh, it, w- it gave me a, a deep respect for that medium as well. And yeah, it's, it's, I'm real excited to do that again. If I have the chance, yeah. Yeah. Well, as <laughs> do you want to ad- do you want to be a filmmaker? Do you I, have that in you? I, uh, I, I could see. I've I've played with the idea of like writing for film, mm-hmm. but not necessarily making. I don't think I I have the patience for that. <laughs> I've I've been on a film set before, yeah. and like the number of takes just to get like twenty seconds of film. <laughs> right. It's just like I can't do it. But like I could see myself maybe writing a screenplay at some point. I could see that. Yeah, you should do that. I. I I need to just do it. You need to do it. You do need to do it. <sighs> All right. Well, if enough people tell me, just like enough yeah. people told you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. You need to do it. So I actually want to get into the video essays now because I feel like they've become such a part of our culture now, mm. especially with YouTube. And, you know, we have, I mean, there's a difference, I think, between a supercut, which were very prolific for a little while. Mm-hmm. I feel like we don't see them as much anymore is sort of a genre and working as someone who's been blogging about culture for a few years now like I saw that rise mm-hmm. and now I'm kind of seeing it things get a little bit more f- sophisticated yeah. in, in the way that people are discussing film right um, so with regards to the video essay do you look at it as like a, a genre um, and mm-hmm. one you know like an art form in mm-hmm. the same not in the same way as film but like an aspect of that yeah, I mean, I do see. I am not. There have been people who have really articulated this form and the the and what it is and what it isn't. Um, and I have never wanted to define it for myself. I didn't know fully what I was making. I just knew I wanted to make something, mm-hmm. and and I don't still. You know, I don't think about like. Uh, I, I do think, you know, to create too many boundaries at this point would be disappointing, you know, because we are at this moment where we have this possibility of making something and distributing it ourselves. Yeah, so I don't I, – I'm hesitant to try to say what that is. I will tell you that when I was making it, um, initially it was uh, – other things that I was I was starting to see online that was really engaging to me, and it and it was like I, I think uh, when we saw the rise of that, we were also seeing the rise of other things online that were really aesthetic, that was really capturing people's attention, and these things would have only existed in museums and galleries. There would be no place for anyone to make something that short and and show it. Right. And I remember just feeling, I remember that moment when I thought online videos were mostly home videos and then realizing, oh, people are putting stuff out here that are, is, you know, it's mesmerizing as art. Yeah. And it was really inspiring to think, oh, you can now make short things that have no, there, there would be no other place for it. And so, because I loved cinema, you know, it made me immediately think about, well, what, what can we do here? And, um, yeah, so... 
Yeah, it's it is really fascinating to me. I feel like that's a good point you make about how before they were just in in museums and that sort of thing. I think the first um, sort of video, not really an essay, but sort of like a montage, I guess. I remember Turner Classic Movies. Here I am being a nerd again. Uh, when I was like in middle school, they they had this, um, and I don't remember who made it, but it's it, it celebrated 100 years of cinema. And so it All like right. went from the the beginning of, you know, the silent films yeah, and yeah. the D.W. Griffith and then up to, I think it was made in like the early 90s or late 80s, so it only went so far. Right, right. Uh, but... <laughs> but um, I just remember like being mesmerized by that right. that sort of montage and like the feeling and the way that yeah. it was cut with the music and yeah. like the the clips like the sound clips of different movies. I was yeah. like, oh wow, this is amazing! Yeah. And now you see that you can see all, all different versions of that on on the internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, right. I remember that too. And it was, you know, um, yeah. You think about it. Like I, I don't think uh, you know. In many ways, if if the climate didn't exist, why would I, you know, make that unless I had this real ambition to get someone to represent me or to find a gallery, mm. which, you know, may, you know, I think that, that that certainly happens. But to know that you could make something like that, here it's for TCM. And then, of course, I've, I've been able to do work for Criterion and right. Sight and Sound. And sight and but sound, but yeah. even before then, you know, it was just that I could do it and put it out there, Um yeah, and it has encouraged a ton of people to to really work on that medium. And yeah, who knows uh, the the end of that? You know, if we're at the already at the end, or if it's just beginning. But um, but it's exciting that it's it's out there. And I do think the transition, you know, from video essayist or whatever that is to filmmaking is not. You know, I don't think I'm going to be the the first and last person to do that. Oh, because yeah. we've seen plenty of film critics who who become filmmakers. Yeah, I mean, especially when you consider there are so many people who just started off directing music videos and right. now they're making. Yeah, I mean, to right. varying degrees of success. Oh, right. That's right. <laughs> um, but yeah, it just it does seem like a sort of natural leap in that way. I think so. Yeah. And I also just see the way in which you played with different, like, I think a lot of times when we think of video essay, we think it's always just someone talking at you and explaining things. And that's, that is a lot of video essays. Mm -hmm. But like, with the, um, the Ozu, uh, of the one where it was just different uh, emotions. Yeah, yeah, I like forget the, what way, it was the way of Ozu. The yeah. way of Ozu, uh -huh. yes. With that video essay, there's no dialogue. It's mm. just, you know, three panels of, yeah. of and from different films of his with uh, the neorealism when you're uh, comparing, yeah. you know, De Sica's version of, uh, why am I, I'm so terrible yeah. with names. No, no, the Terminal Station. The Terminal Station but, yeah. versus Indiscretion yeah. of an American Wife. Right, right. Selznick's version. Like there, it's not you're playing with the form in in many different ways. Yeah, like yeah. essay is is a is a loose term. Yeah, for you. and I like you know in general I I feel like the like I, I like like written essays and I think that there is a tradition where uh, a written essay is exploratory. It's not like uh, didactic or anything. It's more like trying like a person who's trying to figure something out. Mm -hmm. You know, it has an illusion of that. And I also was kind of coming from academia, so I was also trying to resist this, um, for me, like trying to teach something. I think the, one of the reasons why I, I realized, oh, I'm not going to be a good academic because my mind always changes on a subject, I, mm -hmm. I, sometimes week, week to week. And <laughs> I remember, you know, I got to teach a bit when I was in grad school, but, you know, I would teach something, and the next week I would think, I don't think I 
believe that <laughs> anymore, mm-hmm. you know? And so I'm always a little uncomfortable to say this is, you know, so even in, in some of the pieces that I've made that might even feel that way, I don't, I, I try to make it more like questionable, you know, because mm-hmm. I don't know if I, I, I know that it's a question that interests me, but I don't know if it's, it's some, some answer or truth that I want to say, you know, it is the case. Mm. Well, before we wrap up, I do want to ask you a bit, you've been asked this a lot, but about your name, Koganata. <laughs> <laughs> so I know that, you know, a few years ago, you were uh, less interested in, not that you're in the spotlight per se now, no, but no. you, you were very, you know, um, careful with your privacy yeah, and yeah. it was unclear like what you looked like or mm-hmm. whether you were a man <laughs> woman um so why why what has changed yeah and Koganata is as i understand it it's a heteronym of uh ozu's screenwriting partner yeah Koga, a little variation of that Koga yeah Noda? yeah Koga that's Noda. right that's right yeah. um so <laughs> yeah, what you don't have to tell us your real name, no, but like, no. how do you? <laughs> what what? I'm really t- tempted to though. Yeah, uh, you know, um, yeah. I think at the time, you know, I've used uh, pseudonyms before, like uh, writing, and, and I, in part because, um, you know, I am like a lot of people who put things out in the public. You know, they can be the, the also people who are really self-critical or have a, some sort of neurotic relationship with that. And I do where to the point where, you know, I have a ton of work that I've done that I've never put out. Work that probably is okay, but I'm really self-critical. Mm. And it was really stifling. You know, I was just getting older and not putting stuff out. And then I thought, oh, I'm going to, you know, there is something about, for me, the space of, of that, whatever that performance is that we do. And it was really freeing. And, um, and you know, I also have a bunch of heroes that I like who have, you know, from Chris Marker to, um, you know, to uh, Eric Romare, you know, these people who've used um, other names to give them, I think, that space and, and mm-hmm. privacy. And I think at the time, you know, I, I, if I was more thoughtful, like I thought, oh, this is going to lead to this and this is going to lead to this, it was just another name and and for the I knew I was starting to do this visual work and really the only reason I even had it as one name is it visually it was something that was very visual to me mm. uh, the whole like I uh, you know I like the the look of it I like the, the you know the rhythm of it and mm. all of it <laughs> the, uh, you know and that's just the way my head is and so it it um yeah I mean with that said I I really identify you know I really identify with certain you know names and I think my own uh, American name and my Korean name, you know, I'm a very much like caught in between worlds. So I never had a name that I fully identified with. My my family doesn't call me by, uh, you know, they call me by a nickname that mm. that only they use. And my friends call me another nickname. So, um, you know, and I, you know, my father was given a Japanese name when he was young and, and you know, as like, you know, they were colonized. And, and uh, mm. so, uh, you know, names are interesting to me. They're political. They're they're malleable. So I've always felt that sort of relationship with names to be something a little bit playful, but a little bit, yeah, yeah, personal. Mm-hmm. So I've always wrestled with it a little bit. But it is funny. I think you know, it it, um, it was going to be something visual. I I for the longest time thought, oh, I won't ever, sh-, you know, because I'm not so interested in that. But mm-hmm. once. 
I really realized, oh, this is a possibility of making films. You know, I knew that I, I had to um, be present. You know, yeah. I knew I had to. I, I didn't want to be like Banksy. I wasn't, I was you know, <laughs> <laughs> I don't have that, you know, I, yeah. I, I didn't want to play that game. Yeah. So, um, yeah, which I mean, I think Banksy is amazing. So yeah. I, I don't. But, but that feels but, like a lot of work. To yeah. Have to try to, yeah. I didn't want to do that. And films yeah. are kind of different because you, you do need to promote them in some way. Yeah. And the truth is, the reason why I want to make films is I love the conversation of cinema. I mean, I'm, I am like, you know, desperate. For, I love the conversation of cinema. It's like, you know, I'm a really one track person. Like I, you know, mm -hmm. if I'm in a party, it's hard for me to talk about anything else. But, you know, if someone wants to talk about films or, ex, you know, life philosophy or whatever but there is something about uh, that that it, w it was what uh, what made me want to make films you know to be a part of that conversation so mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's a real treat really quick what is your favorite scene of 2017 so far my favorite scene yeah oh that's such a good question I know it's it's oh, tough because wow. yeah. I'm sure you've watched so many movies this year. Yeah, well, you know what's on my mind right now because I saw a ghost story and I'm trying ah. to process that. Have you seen that? Yes, <laughs> it was it was a bit of a schlog for me, but <laughs> well, it's it's kind of stunning, right? It's stunning it is. because it it, uh, it and I I mean I love that that exists in many ways. You know, mm -hmm. I, I I definitely do. Um, and that is getting so much distribution. It's it's kind of crazy, but yeah. Um, Wait, is it the pie scene or is no, it a no, no? Scene? I don't know if that's the scene. I'm just like yeah. that's the. I think that's the very last thing I saw. So of course that's on my mind. But yeah. um, oh, I know that there's a. Uh, but I'm trying to think, trying to be truthful. Like, what is seen as haunting me? Hmm. You know. Um, gosh, I wish we had time because I would love to dig into that and figure <laughs> that out. Um, hey, if you think of it, let us yeah, know. And we can I will. we can throw it on okay. at the end. I will. Yeah, I, I will. Okay, awesome. <laughs> well, hey, um, <laughs> you, are you going to start the movement of podcast host to screenwriter? Is that going to happen? <laughs> and then will you let me interview you if that happens? Uh, yes. Okay. For sure. <laughs> That's a deal, right? I come back. Okay. Yes. Yes. All right, we'll totally do it. do it. Okay. Very good. So my last question. Okay. My very last question yeah. is: When is the last time you saw yourself on screen? <laughs> so. You felt as though you saw yourself in a character, oh, in, a, in a motion. Uh, you felt represented in a way. Oh, that's such a good question. You know, I mean, I think once I, I, uh, I think once I put in my head that I was going to write an uh, an Asian male lead, because again, I didn't think like I'm going to write an Asian male lead and then try to come up with a story. Mm -hmm. I, I had a story, and then I realized, oh, it's going to be an Asian male lead, and it was so exciting for me to think I could write someone that's me. So it's it's completely, uh, you know, like self, uh, you know, <laughs> advertising. But I really felt like the thing that I I love about Jen is that he is talking about he's struggling with existential things he's he's wrestling with his father he's thinking about uh, art and all of those things which a lot of asian males that i know are that kind of you know they're existential a ton of them are existential a ton of them love to talk about art and cinema and um, are kind of like the sort of uh, um, Richard Linkletter characters. You know, there are a lot of uh, Asian men who are like that, but mostly they are represented as either, uh, you know, that they know martial arts or they're some sidekick. But the but almost all of those the Asian men I talk to are pretty sensitive, like wrestling with these big questions. 
So I was so excited to have someone who sort of just had conversations, like I, I you know, and tried to have meaningful conversations, and you know, and and wrestling, just wrestling mm-hmm. with life. Um, so can I say Jen from my film? <laughs> can well, I say John? Cho? We usually. I like, can't say. It. I, can't <laughs> I was going to say, say very long. <laughs> we usually make it someone something that you were not a part of. Oh, uh, that's. We can that's, keep that no, in. No, no, no. That's better. That's better. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I like that description, though. Yeah, yeah. But if you can give us like something you had nothing to do with. Well, okay. So it doesn't I, have I, to be an like. It doesn't Asian. have to be. It doesn't have to be an American film either, no, right? No, so, like you know, After the Storm by uh, Koreeda Hirokazu. I think uh, you know, and not really, honestly, any film from Korea to Hirokazu resonates with me because mm. uh, it's populated with people who are wrestling with family and wrestling with uh, life. Um, yeah, I think I think that I'll say that. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> I, feel, I feel bad because my mind has gone blank with all the, the, the really great films that I've seen this year. And I have felt so... Uh, I felt so encouraged. You, can I ask you a question real quick? Yeah. Do you feel – so I've had this conversation recently, mm-hmm. um, you know, the ridiculous kind of conversation about the end of cinema. To me, it's so much like cinema to me feels like it's just beginning that we have – you know, it's like if someone and uh, was saying like uh, right before Jackie Robinson, really, that, oh, we're at the end of baseball, you mm-hmm. know, because we've had a few – you know, we've had a, a many Babe Ruths in cinema. So I'm not trying to say that – dismissive of that. But, um, I mean, I feel so encouraged by this wave, this new wave of um, black African-American directors, of even uh, female directors and, and even Asian directors. But um, do you feel hopeful in that way? Because, I mean, I, I'm looking at Jenkins and mm-hmm. Kugler and, you know, we can just name them. And it's, it's a, it feels different because obviously we've had, you know, the Spike Lees and other people. But yeah. does this feel different to you? It definitely feels different um just because i do think that in a way there's hollywood is seeing more commercial value in yeah. in black cinema than it ever has before um I, obviously we have the black exploitation right. era and that was a very lucrative but it was mostly white men behind the camera in those movies yeah. and, and they weren't allowed to helm for the most part aside from someone like um uh photographer i'm so, gordon parks right, you know that right. sort of thing yeah and i i do think it's whenever people talk about the end of things like i just yeah. saw a headline i didn't read it but there's a headline in somewhere where they're talking about the end of rom-coms i'm like we're talking about this every two years yeah, yeah, it's like ridiculous. it's not that that's the end i i don't think it's like the musical or the western which i think did have very they died for a while and then like yeah. are sort of back in like different and interesting ways. But I, I, I don't think the rom-com will ever die. Yeah, yeah. I don't think cinema is ever going to die. And I, I think that even just like the video, the, the fact that something like video essays and, and, and things that proliferate on the internet give people who might not be able to afford going to film school yet the tools to like use, you know, to figure things out for themselves and then maybe eventually become filmmakers. Right. The access is, is, better yeah i mean no. even spike lee's always like someone you know we had um who was the one who directed tangerine he um just did, and uh, he has another the film florida project out. right yeah yeah sean sean baker right yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> right so sean baker someone yeah. like sean baker who made a film i mean obviously post-production there was stuff but like he made a film on an iphone right. so yeah, yeah. i don't i i agree with you that it's i feel beginning. like it's, it's yes we're entering a new 
era, and yeah. I'm not concerned. Yeah, no, I feel like, and maybe that that we should stop talking about the end, but just talk talk it, like, is this the beginning of cinema? Because it feels like maybe we've just graduated from kindergarten, maybe. and we've had some really bright, you know, kindergartners. But I feel like it is. Um, I'm really excited about that uh, Aziz. Not just mm-hmm. not just diverse voices, but these like Ryan Coogler, who grew up in Oakland, but also knows international cinema like as a film nerd yeah like when you start seeing those diverse people who've also have been feasting on international cinema and yeah. then seeing how that plays out into culture like we've not you know again it's like if people talked about baseball before we let everyone else play the game it would be ridiculous to imagine that 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 baseball was at its prime because we've not let everyone play this game yet that's and, such a good analogy yeah. and when they yeah. do it's going to be like oh this is what like this game looks like. This mm-hmm. is what it looks like at this level when everyone and they've all digested this kind of, you know, the early cinema and international cinema. And so uh, Jordan Peele, it, it just it feels like this last couple of years, these new voices, but but voices that have also um, feasted on these voices that have existed. And but they're still they're not letting go of their own culture. They're infusing it. Right. Man, I'm excited about that. Uh, yeah, yeah, good. <laughs> we, we should all do so. Okay, very good. All well, right. Thank you so much, Jorgenada. Okay, thank you. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. And scene. Represent is produced by the lovely, amazing Marilyn Williams. Our social media assistant is Marissa Martinelli. And our intro-outro music is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. And have you gotten your tickets to our next live show in NYC? As we've mentioned before, Represent will be part of the Speak Up, Rise Up Festival on August 16th, and I'm so excited to announce that joining me on the show are some amazing guests, including writer and trans activist Teek Milan, BuzzFeed's Bim Adewunme, and friend of the show Antonia Serejido. Tickets are available now, so you should grab them at slate.com slash live. Also, if you are a fan of Represent, you will probably enjoy another Slate podcast, the Double X Gap Fest, which is a bi-weekly podcast that discusses feminism, gender, sexuality, and many other issues that are of interest to women and their friends. You can download and subscribe to the Double X Gap Fest wherever you find your podcasts, and every once in a while, you might even hear me on there. Until next time. <laughs>